Good morning, everybody. So I have just enough voice left for one good sermon. That's it. Yep, that's it. One time, uh, you probably, I probably told you this story, but I repeat them all anyway, so it doesn't matter. One time, uh, when Amy and I were pastoring a church in Pennsylvania, I uh, lost my voice for a month. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. A whole month. I mean, literally. I couldn't squeak. I found it under the bed with the dust bunnies. It did come back, and it, it was weird. It like went, gone, and then it came back suddenly. I don't know if that's how it's supposed to happen. Those of you that stayed at the Holiday Inn Express last night will know the answer to that, but I didn't really know. So anyway, so um, so if uh, if if you want this to be lively, you have to help me. All right, good. First John in your Bible. If you didn't receive an outline, lift your hand up and we will get one to you. We are really professionals around here. Everybody's got one. Great. Um, it's always funny when I find some outlines laying around and I know who sat there. <laughs> Just saying, you know, you got a thousand member church. It's a little harder, but. Amen. Amen. So it's great to be with you, man. Is this not the, the warmest January ever? And I am not arguing with that, Scott. I am really fine with that whole concept. <laughs> First John, let's pray. And uh, we'll invite the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. Well, Father, we, we are your children. And we gather here because this is what you've told us to do. We trust you and we obey you and we have given our lives to you. And you've said that not only did you send Jesus to die and conquer death for us, but you've sent the Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us and comfort us. Some of us really need that comfort this morning. Some of us really need that guidance this morning. And all of us need to be taught. So we settle our hearts down now and we want to hear from you through your word that's timeless. So speak your truth to us, Lord. We are ready to receive as your people. And if everyone agrees with me, say amen. 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 Okay, so um, when you study your Bible, when you read your Bible and study your Bible, one of the biggest challenges is stepping outside of America 2017 and understanding the text for itself. This is a universal problem. Because what happens is we've all grown up in a cultural mindset, a worldview. And when this was written 2,000 years ago, it was written by a real person in a real time with a much different worldview. For instance... An American worldview is one of independence. We value independence. We value individual independence. I don't need anybody's help. We value fam familial, familial, familial independence. You know, I'm here for my family. We value national independence. We are Americans. That is a very different worldview than those who wrote the Bible. 
Their worldview was community. Their worldview was interdependence. I need you and you need me. That's just one example of many, many differences in the worldview. So if we approach the text we have from our worldview and we force the text into our worldview, we distort it. Let me say this again, because this is this is what's going to help you when you study your own Bible. If you have a perspective, think of it like, have you ever, uh, my grandfather used to have a Surrey, you know, like ride behind a horse, a, a buggy. And um, he would take us for rides when we were kids. And the horse would have these blinders on that would keep the horse from getting spooked by traffic and stuff. Think of a worldview like that. It's a filter or a lens or blinds that prevents you from seeing over here. You only kind of see this. This is what you're familiar with. But when you read scripture, if you take it and you just put it right there, you've taken it out of what was originally being said and you've superimposed it on your perspective. So it's your perspective you're reading, not necessarily God's. So when we study scripture together, if you only look at this as a religious book that's meant to tell you how to live and do the right thing, you're taking it out of its worldview and you're forcing it into yours. John was a real person. He lived like you do today. He had dreams. He had pain. He had sorrow. He had loss. He wrote during a time where there was a political environment. There was a cultural environment. He had a family. He was raised in a family. He lived in community. So when we examine scripture, the reason we go back and look at the culture it was written in, because we study it in its original culture. We glean from it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Then after we do that, we then place it into our culture and say, Lord, what are you teaching us today? Instead of the opposite, where we look at it through our culture and we miss all the nuances that John was trying to say. Does this make sense? Some of you. Okay, good. Because we're going to you're going to learn this through time. If you've been part of this church for seven years, I've been doing this the entire time. There's reasons why we want to understand what was going on in the world when this was written, because then it helps us not force our own views on it. And you see this. In fact, as you begin to learn scripture more and more this way, my friends, you'll see people doing it all over the place. You'll see people uh, taking scripture out of context and slapping it onto anything they're going through and distorting it in the process. The churches 200 years ago that supported slavery did that. They took scripture out of its context and applied it to their 1800 context that justified an immoral behavior. Instead of taking scripture for what it said and letting it speak for itself to what we're going through. So today people do it all the time. The the uh, the the argument with homosexuality, it's being done that way. The argument with for abortion being done that way. The argument for anything being done that way. A healthy Christian does the exact opposite. Go to the text, 
Read it in its original context. Let it speak to you and then let the text address where we're at. Does that make sense now? Okay. so therefore, in order to keep doing this with this pamphlet we're reading, we're going to talk about who was John. I want to give you a really detailed idea of who this guy was who wrote this, because understanding who he was and what he was involved in will help us as we interpret it later. All right. So first of all, John was born in the region of Galilee, probably between three and four A.D. Now, understand they didn't call it three and four A.D. back then because they didn't really know things had started over. So they were calling it whatever reign, whoever was the reigning on the Roman throne at the time. That was the year it was. But for us, it was about three or four A.D. We're not really sure which one. All right. Now, here's a map of the region. And uh, you've got Samaria. And if you keep going south from Samaria, you get Jerusalem and, and Judah. And then up north here is the Galilee region right next to the Sea of Galilee. That's not a small place. It's a huge sea. They had storms in the middle of it. Very, very big sea. And then over here to Decapolis was a, a bunch of 10 cities that were that well known. And so Jesus spent most of his time up around the Sea of Galilee. That's where John was born. All right. John died about 103 or 104 A.D. So you see that he lived a very long life by today's standards, even longer, 2000 years ago. He was the son of Zebedee and Salome, which you can read about in the Gospels when Jesus called him his younger brother. He was the younger brother of James. And they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Here's part of that sea I was telling you about. They were fishermen by trade. Now, what would happen back then in this culture is you as a child were raised up in a family that had a trade. All right. And James and John were part of a family where their father was a fisherman. This was a key part of their culture. People ate fish for everything. So a fisherman would go out in the morning and fish all, I mean, at night and fish all night long, come home in the morning with whatever they caught. They would get taxed on it. They would sell it. And that was what they lived on. So James and John and their brothers were being raised in this industry. If you remember in the Gospels, when Jesus is walking along, beginning to pick his disciples, he finds James and John doing what? Fishing with their father, the family business. And Jesus says, come with, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They leave dad. Nobody talks about Zebedee anymore. He's raising his sons to help fish. And Jesus has taken his workforce. Things you can talk about when you're bored. OK, so so. This is what John would have done as a young man. He was being raised and taught the fishing trade. All right. Here's a first century replica of a boat that he would have used. Um, rebuilt. It's in Israel right now. The way the reason we know this is because in 1986, they found one in the Sea of Galilee. There was a drought that year in 1986. The seawater had had settled, gone down and they found a first century fishing vessel in the bank under the water preserved. And now it's in a museum. So we have ideas of what it would have looked like for John and his family to be fishermen. This is the kind of boat Jesus would have gotten in 
when, and he, when he told Peter to pull him out so he could teach the crowd. This is what he's talking about. These were not the high elite people. These were the working class labor people. All right. Everybody awake. Awesome. So it's estimated that John would have been around his late teens or early 20s when Jesus called him in to be a, a disciple. And he became known as John, the beloved disciple. Now, why is that? Why is John known as the beloved disciple? Well, John was a very tender guy from what we can tell. He was very compassionate. All right. You see things that John does throughout his ministry years, throughout his life, that shows us that he had a heart. Peter was different. Peter would say whatever came to Peter's mind. And if you didn't like it, that was your problem. Do we have any Peters in the house this morning? Yeah, but John, yeah, Tom, but, but John was a little bit more sensitive guy. John would have been the guy writing poetry, right? John was the one in the Last Supper photo who's right next to Jesus and lays back on his chest to ask him who's going to betray him when Jesus said someone was going to betray him. That was John. John was right there. He wanted to know his heart was into Jesus 100%, right? Now, that doesn't mean John was a wuss. It doesn't mean he was a wimp because Jesus referred to him and his brother as the sons of thunder. That's what Jesus called them, the sons of thunder. So John, although he was compassionate and gentle, he had an opinion and he could voice his opinion firmly if he needed to be. And this is all going to make sense as we go through this pamphlet together. So that's who John was. Now, John was very close to Jesus. John was part of what made up an inner three. All right. Now, what Jesus did was he had 12 disciples and actually he had many more than that. But he had 12 that were kind of key. And then of those 12, he had three that he was really pouring his time into and building into. And John was part of that, along with Peter and another James. All right. Jesus brother. Now. The transfiguration, John was there on the mountain. When Jesus was transfigured and Moses and Elijah were there, John was there to see that. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law, John was there when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. He saw the mother-in-law get up, John. John was there when Jesus raised Jarius' daughter from the dead. He was standing right there watching it happen. John was... In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was one of the ones sleeping when Jesus was sweating drops of blood. John, he was there. He saw Jesus get arrested in the garden. Jesus referred to John and Paul referred to John as one of the pillars of the church, along with Peter, one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. Jesus sent John and Peter ahead to prepare the Passover meal in Jerusalem when they were coming in for the final time. John. I already told you that John sat right next to Jesus during the Last Supper. This was not a like a chance encounter. The place right next to the head of the table was called the seat of friendship. And that's where John sat, probably on purpose. John was a right-hand man of Jesus. 
John was at the court during the mock trial Jesus went through that night. And because he was known to the high priest, he tells us that it was him that managed to get Peter admitted by the servants into the court that night. So John had some connections. And I'm just going on what they're telling us. This is all in Scripture. I'm not making any of this up. John and Peter were in the court of Caiaphas, which is where Jesus' trial took place. You couldn't just walk in off the street. You had to be invited into this place. John was the only apostle at the crucifixion. The only disciple there. All the other ones had run. Remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times. The rooster crowed, so he's off feeling a pity party. All the apostles had split when Jesus was arrested, wondering if they were going to get arrested. Remember when they were hiding out in the upper room with the doors locked and Jesus came through the doors? Remember all that? Well, that's what was going on. But John was right at the foot of Jesus on the cross, not leaving his side, risking his own life, risking his own arrest to be right there next to Jesus. John was faithful to the end. It was John that Jesus asked to take care of his mother when he was dying on the cross. He looked down and saw John and Mary standing next to each other. And he said to John, this is your mother now. Take care of her. And John did that. John honored that. That was a great honor. Now, John's later life, he lived about 70 years after Jesus went to heaven. Remember, he lived to be an old man. He spent most of his time in the beginning in Jerusalem with Peter building the initial church. Paul says that he met John several years later, and it was John who confirmed his mission to the Gentiles. So in Paul's letters, you can read about what John would have been involved in. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, we're told that there was a council in Jerusalem where they were trying to decide what to do with the people who were getting saved who weren't Jewish. John would have been part of that council. Tradition says that John was with Mary when she died in Ephesus. John was faithful to Mary till the very end of her life. He would have been nursing her and taking care of her. And she's supposed to be buried in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. In fact, here's a, a map of that. Now, you're going to recognize some of these names if you know some things of your Bible. Look down here in the far right corner, Antioch. That's where Acts says that they were first called Christians in a derogatory name. South of there is Jerusalem. So spread from Jerusalem, Christianity spreads. Paul is from Tarsus there. So Paul, when you read his letters, that's where he's from. And all these other Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, those are all places Paul visited in Acts. Out here on the, and then you got Coloss here in the middle. Colossians is written to those people. Galatia up in the top. It's a region. That's where Galatians is written. So you see these areas. Now John was planning the churches along the coast. Ephesus, Smyrna. If you remember last week, we talked about Polycarp in the second century. He was the pastor of Smyrna. So John is planting all these churches out here. And Ephesus is where he lived as an old man and where Mary died. Now, 
In the year 95, and now we're going outside of biblical text to get real history from historical text. In the year 95, the emperor Domitian started a persecution against the Christians. Right? He was a ruthless, ruthless emperor of the Roman Empire. And he began to arrest Christians everywhere. And John, being a pillar of the church, living in Ephesus, was arrested by the Roman guards from Domitian and was brought to Rome as a prisoner. Now, what happened to John in Rome? Brutal. There's a guy named Tertullian. He's a second century, late second century pastor who wrote history. He tells us that while in Rome under arrest, the Christians were tortured by Domitian. Domitian was brutal. One of the things that would happen to them is they would be boiled alive in oil. John, according to Tertullian, was dipped in the oil and when he came out, he was not hurt at all. So the Romans freaked out and thought it was witchcraft, sorcery. So they sent him to a prisoner island called Patmos and they imprisoned him there in Patmos. On the island of Patmos is where John sees the revelation for the final book in the Bible, the revelation. So John is imprisoned on this island. Ninety five, ninety six. Domitian dies and the Roman Senate, just like we see today, they undo all of his orders because it was so cruel. So he's dead. So they undo them all, including all of the prison sentences, kind of like the president now re signing the executive orders to undo executive orders. Same concept. So John returns to Ephesus around the year 97, set free finally. And it is there that they believe sometime around then he wrote this pamphlet we're reading. He would live another five or six years and he would die as an old man. Now, there's a lot of second century Christians who were writing things down for their churches. One of them is a man named Clement. Okay, we have his letters from the second century. Clement tells us this. He says that near the end of John's life, having returned to Ephesus from Patmos, I'm quoting him here. At one place, John chose a young man to become a pastor. He left him in charge of a tutor, in the charge of a tutor, and he was instructed in the ways of Jesus. On John's return sometime later, he was informed that the young man had fallen into bad company. And he had sank from one degree of wickedness to another. He had forsaken all the gathering of the Christians and even became the leader of a robber band. Okay, so John pursues this young robber leader now out into the mountain caves. And when he finds him, he says to him, and this is what Clement says, John said, there is yet room for repentance. Your salvation is not irrecoverable. I will answer for you to Jesus. I am ready most willingly to lay down my life for you as Jesus laid down his life for all men. Stay. Believe me, I am sent by Christ. That's what John said. John was a heart guy. I can imagine John coming up to this guy. The guy's probably awkward now. I mean, he's all cool, Mr. Robber guy. And now John's coming up who knows him. And I imagine he's like, this guy thinks I'm a Christian, you know, that kind of thing. And John pleads with him. What are you doing? Remember what we talked about. Remember what you felt. Remember what Jesus did for you. I am here to beg you to come back before it's too late. 
That's John's heart. Clement tells us that this young man stood still for a second and then burst into tears and hugged John and came back to the faith. That's what John was like. Eventually, John would get weak, too weak to go to the gathering of Christians in Ephesus. So we're told that he was carried to the pulpit to teach. He would always say things like, my dear children, love one another. That was John's thing. Love one another. And when someone asked him, well, why do you say that? Why is that your thing? He said, because everything Jesus taught is wrapped up in that. If you do that, you can't go wrong. Love one another. And eventually, John died in Ephesus around 100 years old. So that's John. Now, a couple of things we can learn from John. Remember in the beginning, we talked about the fact that he said he was there. He wasn't making this up. John was there. He saw Jesus rub the mud on the blind man's eyes. And when he came out, he could only see a little bit and he did it again and he saw all of it. John was standing there. John saw Jesus cast the demons out of Crazy Eddie in Mark chapter 5. Remember Crazy Eddie? Yeah. John heard the people gasp when Jesus healed the lame man and he jumped up. John was there. John saw Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb. John is one of the rare people who saw everything happen. He was one of the first ones who was with Jesus and he was there through the entire thing. If we're going to value somebody's testimony, it's John. I mean, if you're going to not believe what John says, you're just not going to believe it. Because John said, I was there. I heard it. I saw I touched him. I laid my head against his chest and asked him questions. I was there during during those nights on the mountain with him praying. I was there. I heard him say these things. The second thing we can learn from John is John was a pastor. He had a heart for people. He had a heart for us and the people of first century to learn who Jesus was. John would literally go through any means to get the truth out. So when we read this pamphlet that John is writing to these churches and these Christians all throughout Asia Minor who are getting led astray, hear the heart behind it. He's not trying to hurt anybody. He's not condemning or judging anyone. He's pleading with them. Please don't forget the truth because you're being lied to. That's who John was. So let's go now through some more text and hear what John said. Verse one. Let's start there again. Chapter one, first John, verse one. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. Now, you're going to find as we go through John's pamphlet, he, does, he, he shares a lot of opposites. They're called antonyms, all right? And the first one he shares is life and death, and it's on your sheet there. 
John is very clear. There's two ways to live a life of death or a life of life. And he says this was established by God from the beginning. So the first thing he says is that which was from the beginning. If you watched my midweek video, I talked about how this was this would have clued everybody in who heard it to scripture from the beginning. In the beginning, Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, John, all the Christians who would have heard this would have been, oh, yeah, Genesis. Right. John's making a statement with this first line, that which was from the beginning. Now, do you know in the book of Genesis, chapter one, the entire Trinity is there? God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. Well, where is it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, the father's the creator. So he's there and he's creating. Verse two. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters that God was getting ready to create with. We talked about one time, it's a picture of a dove with its wings protecting like a protecting a nest. So the Holy Spirit in the very beginning, as the father is creating, the Holy Spirit is protecting this creation. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. The spoken word of God, that's Jesus. And it's hard to understand sometimes. And I've talked to people about it and it was like, what? Listen. God the Father creates. The Holy Spirit protects creation. The spoken word is the element of cre- the agent of creation. It's God speaking that made creation happen. Okay? Jesus is the flesh form of this. That's what John is saying. In the beginning, the word was there. The word was God speaking. So God is still God, but he's a creator. He's a spirit. And his word is spoken. So right in the beginning. So John says that which was from the beginning. I've seen it. I've seen it manifested. I've seen it in a human being, in a man who went to the cross. So John is saying Jesus didn't just appear. I'm not talking about something that happened 30, 40 years ago. I'm talking about someone that existed from the very beginning in Genesis chapter one. But that's not all John's saying, because in John, his own gospel, he made this connection as well. Verse one in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Once again, connecting us right to Genesis chapter one. Jesus didn't just start. He's always been there. He's been in God's word. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So when you read Genesis one and you hear God said, let there be light and there was light. That was Jesus in action coming out of the words of God, making everything. Jesus is involved in everything in creation is what John's saying. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. When Tom stands up here and he says, God is not in death and despair, and and depression, and all those things. How do we know that? It's good to say it and go, yeah, PK tells us that. But how do we know by Scripture? Because in the beginning, God created, and he created life out of darkness. He created peace out of chaos. Nowhere does it show God creating chaos. 
Chaos is the absence of peace. Darkness is the absence of light. So when God speaks light, he speaks it into darkness and light comes. It's religion that says God brings, you know, desperate things into your life and accidents and kills babies and flies planes into buildings. That's ridiculous. So John says that which was from the beginning. We have heard it with our ears. We've seen it with our eyes. We've touched it. And it's concerning the word of life. God's word is Jesus in action. God's word is Jesus in the flesh. When Jesus walked the earth, my friends, it wasn't like he was up there as a man hanging out with God and it was, okay, it's your turn. No, that's not what happened. God spoke Jesus and he came through Mary as a human being. That's why Jesus was never wrong, never faithless, never powerless, because he was God's word in action. The same word that spoke light into darkness was the same word that walked along the Sea of Galilee that day. When you get this, you're going to be jumping out of your seat. The same word that God used to create the heavens and the earth, the animals, the plants, eons ago. The same word that was, resem- was, was, was made up in human flesh in Jesus. Why do you think Jesus had no doubt when he prayed for the sick man that he was healed? Because it was God's word. If it can make the heavens and the earth, it can heal this broken man. Here it is now. This is God's word now. Jesus isn't physically here anymore. He went to heaven. He's up there waiting. Here he is. His word. It's the same power that spoke light in the darkness. The same power that healed the blind man that day is right here in written form. If you use it and apply it to your life, it'll take your life that's death and turn it into life. That's the power of Christianity, my friends. And how do I know this? Because that's what it says. So John says that which was from the beginning. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. Wasn't created. The life always was. He appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. John made this connection. Verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. So you're on the same team as us. We have seen the life in action. My friends, in Jesus was life. In Jesus was life. Jesus makes dead things come alive. When Jesus is walking along and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he's not doing something new. He's always been doing that. He's always been calling dead things to life. He's, that's what God did in Genesis 1. The world waters are swirling, a chaotic mess, and God says, peace, light, order, land, animals, life, come forth. And when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, Jesus wasn't freaking out and panicking here. He was doing what he always did. It was everyone else that was going, whoa, what's going on here? When I was 15 years old, 
I had an awful home life. Nobody cared. And I tried to kill myself and it didn't work. And all I was was death everywhere. I was depressed. I would listen to Depeche Mode with the headphones on. You know, three of you know what I'm talking about. Great. Man, Chris, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you know what? Somebody cared enough to tell me that the dead life I was living was not what God wanted. Someone introduced me to the life giver. And when I asked him in, I didn't know anything. I couldn't tell you where Genesis was. But I just believed that someone was telling me the truth. And I trusted. And when I did, everything began to change in my life. And I began to have life instead of death. Never again have I wanted to kill myself. Never again have I thought death because life was in me now. It was flowing in my veins. And now when I read the Bible, I'm not reading some foreign document. I'm reading about me. I'm here now. This is me. And this is you as well. Man, I'm fired up this morning. Let's have some scripture. We got 15 minutes. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Old Testament, this is the law. This is what they're talking about. So the psalmist, moved by the Holy Spirit, who was there at Genesis 1, said, blessed is the man who meditates on this word day and night, who it's in their life. They're reading it and learning it. Why? Because it's life. They're not living a separate life and then pretending on Sunday morning. There's no life there. Blessed is that man. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Do you hear the life in those words? They're like a green tree right by the river. Big fruit, big leaves, lots of shade, tire swing, swinging on the branch. That's what their life is like. But I know a lot of Christians, they're like a little shrub bush. Yeah, me too. But who am I going to believe, this or what I see around me? The Bible says if I turn away from that death life and I fill myself with the word of life, my life results will be prosperity. My life results will be goodness. My 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 leaves will be green and luscious. John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I told you that's a great verse to memorize. Do you know why? The Jewish people referred to the law as the way, the truth and the life. That's what they referred to it as. Jesus is speaking to Jewish people. And he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. I'm this. You've been obeying this, not even knowing who it is. That's me in action. That's me in written form. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the nobody that can come to God except through his word, because his word is where the life is. I would memorize that one if I were you. Colossians three, three through four. Paul telling Christians, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When God looks at you, he doesn't see all your mistakes. He doesn't see all your death past. He sees Jesus. If you've given your life to him, you are hidden in Christ, he says. Meaning when he sees you, he sees Jesus. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus is your life, my friends. Jesus is where life is at. Now, the opposite of life is death. The opposite of life is death. You don't have to live a death life. You don't have to live a death future, a death perspective. The world is dead. Do you understand that? The world is dead. Without Jesus, the word of life, it's death. Look what God said in Deuteronomy 30. See, I set before you today life and prosperity or death and destruction. God's not over here. God's not doing that. God's over here in life and prosperity. So God says, I set it both before you. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witness against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live And that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, why does God say, if you don't obey me, you're going to be destroyed? Because these are the words of life. This is him. And he says, if you live this way, the natural repercussion of that is life. And prosperity and blessing. But if you live a different way, then the natural repercussions of that is death and destruction and cursing. Disease, sickness, violence, robbery, all that. But my word will give you life. My word will hold you together. And when things come against you, you'll just hold that out and it'll bounce off of them. That's what God says. God says, choose life, my friends. God is still saying this today. Choose life. Jesus came to the cross. The word of life and action came and killed death. You don't have to die in your life anymore. You don't have to go through that anymore. You can have real life. Is anybody with me this morning? Sin kills. Sin does nothing else. It kills. It's not about doing the right thing so God doesn't get angry. He's angry at sin. He's not angry at you. He's not angry at me. Sin kills. If you drink sin, you die. If you play with sin, you catch something and you die. If you hang around sin, you die. That's what I would have said if I had written the Bible. It would have been easy to memorize. Sin kills. You say, well, I mean, you know, what is sin? Anything that's not in here. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what the news says. I don't care what the government says. I don't care what my neighbor says. If it's not here, I am not going to play with it because it brings death. But this brings life. So when I look at my life and I say, you know what? I don't want to live that way. 
I don't want to go do those things. I don't want to hang out with that crowd. It's not because I think I'm better than them and blah, blah, blah. It's because I don't want to die. I want to have life. That's what being a Christian is all about. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin, the payment of sin is death every time for every person. I can't tell you how many times over the last 20 years I've counseled with Christians and they're telling me their sob story of life and all the things that are going wrong. And when I get down to the heart of their life, it's sin every time. Every marriage ends because of sin. Every child walks away because of sin. Sin is the problem. You know what? The word of life came in flesh form. And when he hung on that cross, he took all the sin on himself. You don't have to walk in sin. You don't have to die. You don't have to have that kind of a life any longer. You have a word that you can trust. Sin looks good for a moment, but it will kill you. Sin will lie to you and sell you out. Sin will stab you in the back. Sin will put makeup on and look pretty at night. Come here, big boy. But when you wake up the next morning, sin ain't looking so good anymore. That's what sin does. The world says sin is fun. Hey, do whatever you want. I heard an interview the other day. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but one young man was advocating for abstinence till marriage. No sex till marriage. You know what the Bible says, that pesky little book. This other person was saying, hey... It's not fun, though. It's not fun. Sin will sound fun until it's time to pay the piper. Then sin comes calling every single time. It may manifest itself in a disease. It may manifest itself in marriage problems. It may marriage, it manifest itself in infidelity. It may manifest itself in any kind of way. But sin is going to come calling for payment every time. I encourage you, my friends, find out what God says and do it 100%. And you will see your life naturally explode in goodness. You will not have all the struggles that people are going through. I know that's not popular to say because we almost love to struggle. You know, we don't want anyone to tell us it was me that caused something. But I can tell you every time I got off God's word, calamity hit my house. Every time. And when things happened... And my marriage was threatened or anything was going on or physical. And I was when I looked back to the word and I said, God, show me where I've missed you. He shows me and I repent and I get back to doing what he should. It could have been something I watched on television. It could have been something I let in my home inadvertently. But when I find out and I cast it out, life comes back because that's how God made the world to work. One more scripture and we're done. Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that appears, to, that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. You're not going to get life from a world that's blind. You're not going to get life from your unsafe friends and family. You're not going to get life from the government. You're not going to get life from the internet and from the books you're reading and from the television shows and the movies you're going to. That's not where the life is. The only place you're going to get life is in God's word. There's a way that seems right and logical. 
That's why the world defends it so vigorously. It seems logical. Just, you know, hey, I'm not going to go there. It seems logical. And the world will defend it, my friends. But I'm here to tell you, you have a choice. Life or death, which do you want? Life or death. John, in his pamphlet, says, I'm here to tell you about the one who appeared as the life, the word of life. And John's going to get even deeper into it this, as we go forward. Amen? Yes. Everybody stand. That's all I got. My voice is tired now. I'm going to go home and drink some tea. Uh, do you know that when I was not living a good life, I would get mad at things like this. When I was living, making poor decisions and justifying them and explaining them away, I would get angry about things like this. Don't you judge me. Don't you tell me what I can't do. I'm not judging anybody or telling you you can't do anything. It's a free country. People died so that you can do what you want. But I'm telling you, you cannot get upset when death comes knocking if you chose that way. You can't. Because when I'm living the way God tells me to live in his word, I am never upset by this message. It builds me up. I'm like, yeah, life. I'm getting life. If I want a good marriage, this is how I do it. If I want great kids, this is how I do it. If I want a good home, peaceful home, this is how I do it. If I want a great job, this is how I do it. Any other way is just going to lead me down the path of destruction. The Bible says that path is wide, smooth stones because lots of people have been walking on it. And you got your friends there. How you doing? We're going. But the way to life is skinny. And you're like one by one, single file. How you doing? You okay? I'm okay. Encouraging each other. You're looking around. Nobody else is here. They're all going that way. And you have to decide, well, maybe I'm going the wrong way. You're not. Because life is this way. Amen? Father, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters. I thank you, Lord, that we have chosen the path of life. And we refuse the way that appears right that everyone else is walking. And we choose to believe your word. We choose to believe the words of life that have been given to us. I pray for my friends, Lord. If anyone's going through things and they're like, you know what? I'm weary. I have been fighting. I've been standing on life. Your word tells us stand until we can stand no more and then keep standing. We stand with them, Lord. A life in the, in the light of Jesus doesn't mean things aren't going to come against us. Doesn't mean we're not going to have anything that we're going to have to battle. In fact, sometimes we have to battle more because we're walking this life we're walking. But you have said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be right there with you. I will strengthen you and encourage you. And you will see my salvation in the end. So, Father, we choose life this day. This church chooses life. This, this community chooses life. We choose life for our families, our marriages, our children. We choose life and we reject death. Be with my friends this week, Lord, and bring us back together next Sunday. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week, my friends. Choose life.